Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm your host, Christopher Ryan, coming to you not live, coming to you dead or whatever the opposite of live is, recorded from Portland, Oregon. Uh, It's Sunday afternoon. This will be going out tomorrow, Monday, so almost live. Uh, The podcast I'm going to be that you're going to be listening to here, though, it's far from live. I recorded this, I think, in August or September. You'll hear me talking about how hot and humid it is in New York. Sorry about that. I just ended up with this huge backlog of uh, podcasts. I was running into so many interesting people and, you know, recording everybody. And uh, so I'm, I'm burning through the backlog and we'll be getting to new, fresh recordings pretty soon. But as you'll, you'll find, uh, just because I haven't released them for a while doesn't mean that they're not interesting. Uh, this is Arden Lee, who's super interesting. She was, as you'll hear, a professional dominatrix for quite a while uh, in her public life, but then in her private life, she was uh, submissive. Um, so there was an interesting balance going on there. And uh, yeah, she's um, she's an interesting woman. So you'll hear uh, some fascinating conversation uh, that I had in August. She talks about moving from New York. She's already in L.A., but the the contact information she gives and and all that business is current. So you'll be able to find her easily. Uh, this episode's brought to you by Sure Design T-shirts. As all these episodes are brought to you by Sure Design T-shirts. Uh, I got an interesting email the other day from a woman who just loves her Sure Design t-shirt. She just got it, and um, she wrote to me about her her response to the Sure Design t-shirt, and let's see, I think I've got it here. Yes, she got the the Tangentially Speaking, which has a sort of a Hunter S. Thompson-esque design to it, but... What she said about the shirt itself was she said, my Shure Design t-shirt is a bit more than comfortable. In fact, it's one of those shirts I'll sometimes leave on during sex without a bra, of course. Have any other women reported that having their breasts caressed by these shirts is absolutely mind-blowing? Have you done any research around this theory? And do you need another test subject? It felt so good I had to add a new sensation to my mental database. I'm going to slowly replace all my shirts with Sure Design t-shirts. Signed, Z. What do you think about that? That is probably the most ringingest endorsement of a t-shirt I've ever read or heard. So, I mean, if you have to add a new sensation to your mental database, that's a pretty cool t-shirt. Uh, I sent that on to Duncan. So if you listen to his podcast, you might hear him reciting <laughs> that email as well. <laughs> you, you'll, you know, they, ah, I've heard this before. Yeah, that's me and Duncan. We're going to, I think we're sharing that one. Uh, I also sent it on to Bennett, the owner of Shore Design T-shirts, who is now in lust with Z or possibly love. We haven't determined that yet. In any case, they're great shirts. You can get them uh, at com. If you use my discount code, which is sex at dawn, altogether, one word, sex at dawn, D-A-W-N, you get 10% off at your whole order. And if you want uh, one of our shirts that uh, is made by Shore Design T-shirts, you can go to chrisryanphd.com, find the store, get in there, and order away. 
at the moment we've got hoodies and shirts. We've got short design. I mean, sorry, we've got uh, tangentially speaking style in a light gray. And then in a darker charcoal, we've got the Sex at Dawn shirts, which people dig as well. And there's some other uh, Civilized to Death shirts coming soon, actually. So the promotional T-shirt will be available long before the actual book. I'm not sure what stage of failure that represents, but there you have it. I'm headed tomorrow. When you hear this, I'll be on my way. I'll be down in L.A. to record um, the next session with Joe and Duncan, which will be for Duncan's podcast, so that'll be coming out later in the week. Uh, We're recording that Tuesday, I believe, and then Duncan normally takes a couple of days to, uh, to write and perform his intro. Uh, as opposed to what I do, which is turn on the damn mic and start talking. So that's why you notice Duncan's intros are far more interesting and tightly constructed than what you're listening to right now. And then Thursday, I'm headed to Austin for the Paleo FX conference, which is the, as I understand it, the sort of premier paleo conference in the U.S. Uh, There will be all sorts of interesting people there, including a uh, former guest on this uh, program, um, the guy who does the Bulletproof Coffee, Dave Esprit, uh, will be down there. Uh, and I've got some interesting interviews lined up uh, for the podcast. I'm going to be talking to Tucker Max, who's an um, interesting guy. If you've heard of him, you know what he's about. If you haven't, you can Google him. Uh, I'm vaguely aware of his shtick, but it'll be interesting to meet him in person. And uh, also going to be interviewing John Durant, or Durant, I'm not sure how he pronounces his name, but he's the author of The Paleo Manifesto. Saw him on the Colbert Report a couple years ago, uh, which was quite amusing because he came on wearing those um, five-finger shoes, you know, the, the ones that have toes. And uh, <laughs> I thought he handled Colbert quite well, actually. Uh, so that'll be interesting to to meet him. Um, and uh, I'm also going to be talking to Jeffrey Miller, who wrote a book called The Mating Mind, which is a, a very well-received book on evolutionary psychology. So I'm probably going to be disagreeing with these guys on theory but uh hopefully we'll we'll have interesting uh, conversations and they've all agreed that we'll we'll be civil to each other despite the fact that we disagree and in the case of John Durant we'll probably there's more potential for conflict um because I think he strongly disagrees with uh sex at dawn and I know that he is close with Steven Pinker who he studied with at Harvard and if you've read Sex of Dawn, you know that um, Steven Pinker has lots of reasons to be pissed off at uh, at Casilda and me. So uh, there you have it. And I'm hoping to to meet other people down there uh, who can, who have some time, and you know I can find some time to interview them as well. It's going to be full of interesting folks. So if you're in Austin, drop me a line and say hello. We're going to spend a few extra days there after the conference, so uh, we're just going to look around and check out the town. And um, that's why I'm doing this now, because I probably won't have a chance to upload stuff while I'm on the road. So that's it. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, I just listened to it again and was uh, very pleasantly reminded of uh, of what a good conversation it was. I, I really enjoyed meeting 
ardent. So I hope you enjoy it as well. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you use Amazon, go through our website, use the, the link, the Amazon link, you click on the bonobo balls and, uh, we'll get a, a couple percentage of whatever you spend. And there's also a donate page as always. I'm going to be doing some new stuff going to be, we're, we're working on new sponsorships and I'm also thinking about doing this other kind of podcast, uh, where I tell travel stories uh, you've probably heard me talk about it. Uh, I talk about it with some other people on their podcast, but I've been resisting it because it, I don't know, it feels egotistical or something, but uh, a lot of people have been encouraging me to just go ahead and do it. And they make the point, which is a legitimate point, that it's not about me, right? It's about things, these amazing things that I happen to experience in the 20, 25 years that I was wandering around the world. And um, there's a responsibility to to share that stuff, to put it out there in one way or another. I've always sort of imagined writing a book and maybe I still will write a book, some sort of memoir or, you know, collection of, of stories from my travels. But in the meantime, once I get this office set up here in Portland and sort of get settled in, maybe I'll just record one a week or something and uh, and put that up as a, sort of a, an associated uh, different category within the podcast. I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to organize it, but... If you think that's a good idea and something you'd like to hear, let me know, and, and that'll put a fire under my ass, and I'll I'll get it done a little faster. Anyway, that's enough for now. Uh, I hope you really enjoy the podcast, and I uh, hope you're having a, a great time wherever you are. Thanks. Bye. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet the next Hello podcast listeners This is Chris Ryan I'm here in New York on a very steamy Manhattan day I just walked about, what, 25, 30 blocks or something to get here So pardon me while I sweat I'm here with Arden Lee who's also steamy and a New Yorker. Have you, you always lived here? Are you a native For New Yorker? For 13 years now. Which so is close enough. easily half your life, just <laughs> ballparking. Yeah, 13 years, really. Yeah. That's a long mm-hmm. time to be in Manhattan. Yeah, I'm actually moving to L.A. in January. Oh, really? So, yep. Well, that's interesting. I just uh, interviewed um, Ari Shafir, who's a comedian who just moved to New York from L.A. You guys should have done an apartment swap. Oh. Would have saved oh, everybody would have been clever. time and trouble. Yeah. I don't know. How would you felt about Wentworth, though? Wentworth, my taxidermy oh, Went- dear head. Is that Wentworth? That's Wentworth. I think he's he would have probably appreciated it. I'll see him tonight. I'll ask him. He's, uh, he's a pretty... Um, What's the word for Ari Shafir? Now, everyone listening to this is throwing out words because most of them know Ari. Uh, Bizarre dude, uh, eclectic, quirky. Oh, then they would probably get along. Yeah, I think he'd be fine with a dead deer in his living room. Uh, He'd probably be hanging bongs from it or something. (laughs) (laughs) Wentworth. Okay. So we're here with Wentworth, who is the dead deer with glassy eyes. And uh, don't tell me. Don't tell me the cat. uh, Wesley. Wesley. Wesley the cat. So you're taking Wesley with you to L.A.? Oh, yes. 
Is he prepared for for what he's going to encounter there? I guess he's going to have to be. Yeah, because I hear California cats are a whole different breed. Well, he's probably going to have to lose some weight to fit in with the culture. He, yeah, he will. He'll have to go on. He'll get a colonic irrigation. Yes. Maybe. <laughs> he'll do a juice cleanse. <laughs> That's a tough job, you know. I, I mean, I, I'm sort of famous for uh, being able to clip cats' nails. I've got a technique where they relax and they'll just let with a regular human nail clipper and just, you know, and I had friends in Spain who were like, can you come over and clip the cat's nails? Because, you know, the cat would freak out. But I think getting a hose up a cat's ass would be a whole different ball of wax. That would be much tougher. Yeah, I'm not going to attempt that. Yeah. That. <laughs> relax, Wesley. <laughs> sure. You relax. You were saying he doesn't even like it when you go in the shower. Yeah, so you come out and with a hose, he's not going to be into yeah, that. No. He's not going to be happy. So why are you moving to L.A.? Are you going to become a famous TV star? Um, it's uh, it's partly for my career. Um, you know, I have a screenplay that I'm really trying to push forward and get made into a film. Oh. Um, and uh, Can you talk about it? Sure, yeah. It's actually uh, the story of my time that I spent as a professional dominatrix uh-huh. in New York City. It's called The Rise and Fall of an American Dungeon. <laughs> and title. I'm writing I'm writing a memoir to go along with it as well. Right. So there was I read now I'm gonna be very embarrassed if you wrote this, but didn't didn't a book come out recently by a dominatrix in New York, like three years ago, four oh, years yeah. ago? Oh yeah, Whip Smart. Whip Smart, yeah. right, right. Um I haven't read it, but from what I've heard from people who have read it, it's very uh it's really much more of a drug memoir than a BDSM memoir. That's right. And okay. that there's still this sort of judgment around BDSM. All the, the dominatrix memoirs I've read are, are uh, you know, very like, oh, look at the crazy, quirky things that I did to these freaks, you know? Right. And for me, I was very, very invested in BDSM personally as a culture. In fact, I was the 24-7 submissive as well as girlfriend of my boss who was there. So it was this really interesting, you know, by day I was this big, powerful dom. And by night I was, you know, a quote-unquote slave as much as I kind of hate the cheesiness of that word these days. Um, and it was kind of cool because the working at his business, like the more, like the better, the more sex- successful a pro dom I became, the better his business was doing. And I also ended up being a manager and training the new girls there and everything. So it was this weird sort of concentric circle. So yeah. for, so, so for even me, your, your dominant behavior was submissive in the sense that it was bringing more business to him and helping him out and all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for me, I really want to write a, a memoir from the inside of BDSM, you know, not from the outside to, to really look at what it meant to me and to my clients to really be invested in that lifestyle. That's interesting. That's interesting. And do you have, you have agents and have you pitched it or how's the, well, I have an agent who, um, who was working with, uh, with me on the new rules of attraction, which is the book that, uh, the dating book that I already wrote. And, uh, she, you know, she's been talking to some people and I've also been in talks with, um, some people that I met through, um, our mutual friend, Neil Strauss, you know, Robert Harper and stuff like that. So, um, and mostly I've gotten some interest back on it and they're just like, this is really good, but you need to write more of it before we give you a book deal so uh i think that's part of the goal too with moving to la is to kind of um to clear a lot of space for me to be able to work on those projects 
excuse me if I laugh in, inwardly, because I, my whole life is about clearing space to work on projects. Yeah. And moving to L.A. was the worst, worst mistake I ever made in that respect, followed closely by moving to Vancouver in the summer. Vancouver in, like, November might have been a good move. Vancouver in April, May, terrible move. Not so much. Because everybody, Vancouver in the summer is, like, reminds me of those, what are they, frogs or something that, like, you know, spend forever under the mud, you know, and then they're like seven days in the middle of summer where they'll come out and they're just in this mating frenzy. That's Vancouver in the summer. Ah, gotcha. It's just like everybody's out and, you know, sexy and running and biking and kayaking and flirting. And it's just like, oh, all this energy. And the last thing you want to do is sit in a dark room somewhere and write your damn book, you know? Yeah, that's true. At least with L.A., though, L.A. seems to shut down around one thirty. Whereas New York goes till four, five, six in the morning. Yeah. And then you end up sleeping in all day and not getting any work done. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, it's tough. It's tough getting all these once in a lifetime opportunities. You know, I mean, like here, I, I'm in New York now. I shouldn't be in New York. I should be in Vancouver writing, but I'm not. I'm in New York talking to you. So, all right. Well, we can blame each other well, I'm for happy this about afternoon that anyway. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Um, I, I should mention, I just came from lunch with my editor. Uh, here to you. And he was an editor at Harper when I, I pitched uh, Sex at Dawn. Oh, nice. And uh, he's, he was my supervising editor there. Now he's at Simon & Schuster. And uh, so I followed him. Uh, I personally would never publish another book with Harper. I'm sorry, Harper, but it's true. They, they messed up every way you can mess up. They messed up. And they were arrogant about it. So it was like the worst combination you can have in a publisher, like, you know, sort of dismissive arrogance combined with incompetence. So anyway, sorry, wow. Harper, but that's <laughs> true. And you know, it's true. Um, they give my, our publicist was transferred over from cookbooks. So you can imagine hmm. her contacts in the popular science uh, world were limited, you know. Anyway, I don't want to gripe about about that, but uh, talk to other publishers, too. <laughs> <Good to know. laughs> don't, don't limit yourself. To um, anyhow, so, uh, so inside the world of BDSM, I have to tell you, I don't know that much about BDSM. I, one of the weird things that's happened since Sex of Dawn came out is we've been, Casilla and I have been sort of, um, welcomed into a lot of communities, the whole sort of um, sex positive world, right, has welcomed us because they know the book and, and they know we're non-judgmental and we're, you know, open to everything. But the, the downside of that is a lot of people assume that we know a lot more than we do, you know, and we know a lot about bonobo testicles you got any questions about gorilla penises i'm your guy you know Mm -hmm. but a lot of the um, the sort of alternative uh you know like i've never been on fet life you know i never heard of it until i was actually speaking at a polyamory conference and people were asking me for my fet life profile and i had no idea what they were talking about so um yeah, so I don't know that much about the whole BDSM scene, but I have a friend. I, I met someone recently, and I want to be discreet, um, but she really opened my eyes to things in in a way, uh, in a very moving sort of way. She had had uh, a lot of um, medical issues. They required surgeries, repeated surgeries, and she had uh, 
or has, I guess, a, a chronic pain condition. And she has learned to transform, uh, she's learned, I guess, to eroticize her pain and to, to make a very uh, deep and profound association between the pain and pleasure. And so she's pretty deeply into the BDSM scene, like into things that make me uncomfortable, right? That I couldn't, I, I can't follow. Um, non-judgmental, of course, but, you know, it's sure. beyond what I would be able to, you know, hang with. Um, but I but I see it in, in a completely different way through her eyes, you know? Because, I mean, I'd like to write about that at some point, you know, without disrespecting her. Even talking about it, I feel a little weird, but nobody could possibly know who it is. But, um, but it's just, I guess my point is that... Uh, before meeting her, my thinking about BDSM was very much like, well, it's, you know, kind of Freudian. It's like, okay, you got mommy issues, so you want to be spanked or whatever, you know, blah, whatever. Fine, cool, whatever. But but I didn't think about how profound it could be and how healing it could be. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. So yeah. did you find that? How long were you uh, a dom? Uh, about three and a half years. Three and a half yeah. years. Right. Now, what's really interesting about the way you frame that to me was that when I've spoken to people in, in that world before, uh, uh, dominatrixes, I, I actually, when I lived in New York, my friend's roommate was a dominatrix. She, she was in a band called, if I remember, the Cycle Sluts from Hell. Okay. And she was also a dominatrix. And I remember one night we were, her, my friend and I were hanging out in the apartment. It was late. We'd been smoking and watching star trek reruns or something and she came in at like four in the morning and you know just sat down and smoked a joint and you know was chatting with us and she talked about her work and some of the people that she saw whose names i can't mention because uh, she made me swear not to but uh very interesting and her whole thing which i guess is kind of typical is this idea that uh a lot of the people who uh, seek that sort of interaction are very dominant in their daily lives. Mm -hmm. Do you find is that your understanding as well? I mean, honestly, it's it's all kinds. Like people, people would ask me, "Oh, what are your clients like?" And it's right. like, you know, it could be, you know, your doctor, your lawyer, the guy making the million dollar phone call, your rabbi, your dad. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, really? Did you ever have or, any or, Oh, all the time. Really? Yeah. Uh huh. And did they tell you? Or they were well, rabbis? I don't. I, let me rephrase that. I don't know if they were actually rabbis, but they were Orthodox Jews. You know, they uh, okay. Were so with, they had yeah with the the curls and you know the the night riders. Yeah, I used the, to call them. I used to work on Forty Seventh Street in the Diamond oh, yeah. District. Yeah, I, I worked there for two years, and uh, I was the only non-Jew on the block, and we used to call them well except for the security guards we used to call them the the night riders because they wear the long black jackets yeah, and yeah the, the long and coats yeah. and hats mm -hmm. really so you had them that's oh, yeah. interesting yeah quite a number and uh you know and everyone from from people like that to like you know 21 year old college students who figured out that they had a foot fetish you know and saw us on the internet right yeah huh so how much did it cost um at the time, at the house I was working, it was 200 an hour plus tips. 200 an hour plus tips. Yeah. Right. And this is not sexual. 
Yeah, no, there is no actual sex included. Right. It's not it's not illegal, right? It's not like prostitution. There's not that sort of legal issue. Or well, is there? that's that's where the plot twists. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and this is um, this is in particular what makes my story uh, also pretty compelling is that we were shut down in 2008 by the NYPD on a prostitution charge and basically they said to us we know that you weren't actually having sex with your clients but we think that there are certain things you were doing that come close enough so therefore we're going to confiscate all of the money on premises as well as drain all of your business accounts as well as any linked personal accounts and you can try and fight that charge because you might be right because you're not actually having sex with anyone there but um, good luck now that we took all your money you might as well just plead down to, uh, you know, like, take, take, a, take a plea bargain, which is what my then-boyfriend who was arrested did, um, needing to borrow almost all of the money I had saved from all of my pro-dom earnings to pay for his lawyer, which I still haven't gotten back. <laughs> so if I get a book deal out of it, there will be some sort of universal karmic justice in that. Um, but yeah, they basically said that, um, you know, because we were offering prostate massage, quote unquote, you know, like basically a piece of plastic went in a guy's butt and right. the NYPD didn't like that. <laughs> that is really interesting. That sounds a lot like... An article I just read on the plane out here in the New Yorker about uh, asset forfeiture with uh, drug laws and how lots mm -hmm. of police departments were just busting people because they would take all their property under the asset forfeiture law, which may apply to prostitution as well. I don't know, but it sounds exactly the same. They would take all their property, take their house, take the car, take the boat, take whatever, and then say, yeah, and, and then like not convict anyone. Just yeah. like, well, you can fight it if you want, but, you know, where are you going to get the money? Mm -hmm. uh, if you just walk away, then we'll just keep your stuff and that'll be the end of it. No, well, they, they definitely convicted my uh, my ex. They convicted him of, of a Class D felony promotion of prostitution. Really? Um, but he took a plea bargain and basically he, uh, he got five years of probation, no jail time, and... Uh, I think what was really important to him at the time was retaining his voter rights because uh, he was a veteran. And uh, and also they had been, you know, threatening to maybe charge him as a sex offender with the victim being, quote unquote, public sensibility. So they dropped that as part of the bargain. So you as can well. be a sex offender without there being a victim. Apparently. Well, public sensibility is the victim here. You know, as <laughs> one of my clients who was, you know, a, a good friend of my myself and, and my boyfriend at the time said he was like, you know, what? It's not like anyone came out and dragged me off of Walker Street, you know, and made me go in there. <laughs> you know, yeah, and it's not public. I mean, you're not you're not on the street. Yeah, you're not putting no, anything on TV. There are no kids involved. Yep, it was very well hidden. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that I mean, is really. It was 2008, and you know, New York was undergoing that whole Elliot Spitzer thing, and uh, so this you know, was where, after he got busted. Yeah, very shortly after. It was in fall of 2008, and. Uh, um, and uh, and also you're looking at the uh, the time of the economic crash as well. So the city needed funds, and they went on a sting, mm, you know, shutting so. down a whole bunch of places. Uh, it wasn't I think, just you guys. Yeah. Oh, no, they put together a whole vice squad. There were about five places that got shut down. And also there were some, like... Um, some porn stores where like like just like a gay bookstore you know like a like uh and i don't remember the exact thing but there was like an undercover cop who 
solicited a guy there, like solicited one of the customers. And the guy thought he was just like being picked up or whatever. And I don't remember if the cop actually offered him money or said, you know, uh, or, or, or whatever it was. But according to when the guy spoke out later, he was like, I don't know. I thought it was just like his thing. I was like, sure, why not? You know, like, right. hey, yeah, let's go hook up. And then they dragged him outside and arrested him and tried to say that the store was like a basically promoting. It was just so, it was so lame. Yeah, it was so lame and, and awful. And the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom, actually, like Susan Wright was really helpful. And, um, you know, in, in helping us arrange like to try and raise money for uh, for my ex's legal defense and and in speaking out to journalists about like the fact that it, it, it was really not OK. It's like the law wasn't clear wasn't explicit about we were like well tell us what we can and can't do like right. none of us want to be prostitutes like not that there's anything wrong with that despite it you know except for it being illegal but also like if we were doing that we would be charging a lot more than 200 an hour <laughs> you right. know what i mean so yeah so how did they in the court how did they define sex then i guess it, i guess as penetration that counted Penetration, yeah. So of, of a dude with wouldn't have a been. butt plug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I've been. I, I, I interview lots of different types of people for this podcast, but um, the, one of the themes is people who work in the war on drugs. You know, mm-hmm. I just interviewed a guy named Carl Hart at Columbia a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. and we were talking about the same sort of abuse of the law for you know moralistic you know sort of very bullshit amorphous you know undefined i guess is the point you know yeah. like you know we're talking cuz i didn't know much about methamphetamines and that's what he's working on now and he pointed out methamphetamine is exactly the same molecule that is in over, uh, prescription medication, Adderall. Oh, sure. It's exactly this. I didn't know that. I thought it was, you know, and like meth mouth and all that. It's like, oh, that's bullshit. You know, it's all this propaganda that, you know, and I've seen, I, I didn't know about methamphetamines, but I've certainly seen that happen with marijuana and MDMA and LSD and, you know, all these scares and yeah, it's very interesting. Land of the free, home of the brave. Yeah. Here we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> very interesting. So you, so your place gets busted in 2008. Mm-hmm. So did that put an end to, to your, at least, well, don't say anything that you don't want to say, but I mean, that put an end to that period of your life, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, that and I was outed by the New York Post when I tried to, you know, raise legal, the funds for uh, my boyfriend's legal defense. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, the Post, uh, you know, I, I put up just a little message on the internet that was really strictly confined to our community and uh the new york post found that thought it would make a great story quoted me as though i'd spoken to them and uh put a full page photo of me in my dom gear out there where'd they get that so oh i mean the internet obviously Uh, yeah Yeah. because you know you need photos out there for your advertising of course Mm. you know i wasn't gonna but but it was very confined to those spaces and you wouldn't have known to look for it unless you knew my professional name or unless you were Uh. running in those circles anyway you know and i told some of my friends that i was a pro dom but there were definitely people who didn't know and that's not the way that i wanted to choose to reveal that part of my identity you know wow 
It was like, you know, page eight of the New York Post. So your family got involved and saw all that? And... My mom knew about it. Uh, my yeah. stepdad didn't. And I had to, and I, I was actually uncomfortable with that because when I told my mom, um, I told her the day I was hired and I said, this is something I'm going to try out, see how it goes. And she said, well, we're not telling your stepfather. And I said, well, I was going to tell him, but okay, you know, if it makes you more comfortable not to. And, uh, and it was very difficult for her to have to, to tell him what happened, you know, cause at first she was like, cause well then also, you know, um, uh, my book came out, my book, the new rules of attraction, which mentions my history as a professional dominatrix. So and that's if, written in your name. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Arden Lee is a pen name, but, oh, I got you. Okay. but I mean, of course I'm going to share with my parents the fact that I'm a published author. Like I'm not going <laughs> to, yeah, it's kind of a cool thing. Yeah. I'm not going to, yeah. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not typically, I'm, I'm not very into hiding things from the parts of my family that I'm close with, you know? And, and my mom tried to say, well, I'm just going to say that I didn't know that you were a dominatrix. And I said, oh no, 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 no. Like no more lies. Like n- 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 no more secrets. Like. I'm going to, if this, if this becomes an issue, I'm going to tell my stepdad exactly the conversation that we had and, Mm. you know, whatever. So she ended up telling him and apparently it was very difficult for her. And my stepdad kind of approached it with, well, now that we haven't disowned you, I hope you know that you can trust us. Like basically like if we handled that, I hope you know that we can handle anything else that you have to throw at us in the future. And I was like, well, that's that's that could have gone a lot worse anyway <laughs> yeah, sure. you know so, <laughs> it's it's so funny you know because we're you and i are in these circles where like we really get what it means to be non-judgmental and other people who are not in those circles think that saying well because we didn't disown you <laughs> you know yeah. that, you know that that's that that's being non-judgmental but you know i love my parents they're great they've always been very supportive of me and um, yeah, so, you know, it is, it is what it is, but I'm definitely, you know, I, I try to, despite the fact that I'm working on the memoir, um, I'm really trying to separate myself from that because there are a lot of people who, you know, um, when I first marketed my book to, uh, to source books, my publisher and the other publishers I was speaking to at the time, um, I was still a pro dom and that was kind of my hook was like the original title of the book was called whipped. A professional dominatrix shares the secrets to wrapping men around your little finger because so much of what I learned about seduction came from my career as a pro dom and um because it really forced me to learn how men think and uh you know to see patterns and to understand the kind of things that would keep my clients coming back to me um of course that's not what i'm actually teaching in the book i mean it's actually a a dating and relationship book Mm. but Nonetheless, I, you know, my, my first sort of impression of the book when I started writing it was that it would be sort of like sex tips for straight women from a gay man, like a kind of like kitschy point of purchase book, like, like, Oh, look, you know, here's the dominatrix telling you how to like get the guy you want and get him to do the things you want or, or whatever. And then I wrote it and it ended up actually being incredibly sincere and something that I really, really believed in, you know, once I had all my, my research lined up and, you know, I, I studied pickup, I studied with Neil Strauss and, um, I studied all of the things that, uh, Neil studied in the game. I got certified in neurolinguistic programming and Ericksonian hypnosis, and I studied brand marketing and you know all these kind of things that I put together. And when I finally wrote the book, I was like, no, this is a very serious book, actually. And my book still kind of relates things to my history as a pro dom, 
because there are a lot of things that I learned as a pro dom that translate into dating and relationships. But, um, but yeah, so, so by the time, by the time it was at Sourcebooks, we kind of decided, yeah, this is not the right title. And it actually took us a very long time to come up with the new rules of attraction as, uh, as our title. But, um, but I'm happy we did that, you know, because, because I am trying to separate myself from my history as a dominatrix. And I don't, obviously I'm very upfront about it, but it's, but it's definitively in my past, you know, I don't, I don't need any more guys on Twitter calling me goddess and begging me to play with them, whatever. I'm just really past those days. <laughs> now you mentioned that you were, when you were doing that professionally, you were also a slave or a sub or, yeah. yeah. Um, do one of those come more naturally to you than the other or um definitely when i first entered the industry being a submissive was more natural to me um and i kind of had to think backwards when i was a dom for a while in terms of like well i know what i like having done to me and i can do that to someone else right you know does it work that way i mean is a as a woman in a submissive role, mm-hmm. can you extrapolate from that to the man in the submissive role? Does that, in other words, is the sub- submissiveness something that's more determinative than the gender or the sexual orientation or whatever? Um, that's a good question. And it would, it would be interesting to think about that in terms of, you know, the type of client that was drawn to me. Because I was a very uh, distinctive I dom. See. That's a very like, good point. Wore... It's a very self-selected group you're talking about. Yeah. There. Yeah. yeah. And so what was your what was your shtick as a dom? What was what did people come for? Well, I, I wore ballet pink and ballet pearls. Ballet pink and <laughs> pearls. Wait, wait a minute. What is ballet pink? Like ballet like, shoes know, like, and no, like, leotards No, like the color, like the pale pink color. Oh, that's you know? a color. Okay. Yeah, I like thought... as opposed to like hot pink or whatever. <laughs> I'm picturing you in tights and like those flat white shoes. <laughs> and twirling around on your toes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, but I, but you know, every dom in the Plie scene, when I, uh, <laughs> when I was in the scene, I, you know, I went to the parties and all the doms I saw were wearing black leather right, and latex, or latex and yeah. maybe red, maybe purple. Uh-huh. And I had just bought a corset, um, like, uh, you know, when I, this is like, before I was a full-time pro dom, I had bought a corset because I was like, I really want a nice corset with like the steel boning and everything. And, mm. um, and I went to purple passion, which is one of the BDSM stores in New York. Uh-huh. And I tried on this pale pink satin corset and, you know, f- for, for as much of a monetary investment as that was for me at the time on a bartender's salary, um, I wanted it to be versatile enough that I could wear it in other situations rather than just play and dress up and going out to kink parties. So by picking one that was pale and satiny, I was like, well, I could technically wear this with like a pair of black dress slacks or a pencil skirt. And Mm. it would be, you know, maybe a little provocative, but it would still be acceptable. You know, yeah, exactly. It wouldn't be weird. I mean, now I don't really care about being weird at all. And I've worn crazy shit all kinds of places. But at the time, that's what I was thinking. So then there I am with my new pro dom career. And I've just been hired at this house and Uh. thinking, oh, man, I should have bought a black leather one because now I'm a pro dom. And I was like, well, you know, I'll just start out with this and see where it goes maybe when i make more money i'll buy something else and that ended up becoming my signature was you know that that color and that um sort of uh 
you know, the uh, uh, the associations with that and the way that I styled it ended up bringing a certain kind of client to me because I didn't look so mean, you know? Like, I uh, during all my years as, as a dom, I really couldn't bring myself to be mean to people. You know, if you wanted someone to, like, humiliate you and tell you you were worthless, it was like, well... I guess I can do that, but it doesn't really come naturally. It was more about like, I'm going to do these things to you and, um, you follow my rules and you do what I say and we're going to have a lot of fun. You know, now you start to fuck with me and you're going to be sorry, but you know, and that's the kind of client who was drawn to me was definitely the kind of guy who like didn't want to be yelled at. He was like, if I haven't done anything wrong, <laughs> like, then why are like, why am I automatically like starting, you know, like, like, um, they wanted someone that they could actually relate to and, uh, you know, a, a nice human being who would, you know, do the things to them that they found, you know, erotic or controlling or whatever, but who was, you know, relatable. Hmm. So do you think that, that you probably had a higher proportion of guys who were new to this? Yeah, I definitely had a lot of novices and uh, and a lot of regulars, too. You know, mm. there was another dom at the house who, who booked really well, um, who was, you know, that leather-booted bitch kind of dom. And she was she had a lot of clients, but a lot of them were, were just kind of one-offs because it was that kind of like... It was almost like she was like the world's tallest roller coaster you know like she was like the world's meanest dom it's like mm. well you have to try that once like see if you can survive her right. <laughs> right. you know yeah so <laughs> now uh forgive me if this is a dumb question but were all your clients straight did you ever have gay guys um i've had bisexual guys huh yeah Bisexual guys, okay. Yeah, because I'm trying to think, like, would a gay guy get off on being dominated by a woman? Potentially, I guess. Um, I mean, I, I think there are there are gay male pro-doms, though, you know? Oh, sure. You know no, I know them, there are. So. I know there are, but what I'm wondering is if there's a subclass of gay men who are particularly interested in being dominated by a woman you know what i mean i feel like i feel like your real question here is are there actually straight men who like getting fucked in the ass <laughs> no i've been reading Dan because Savage that long is something enough. i get you know that's something i get asked a lot <laughs> no no you can answer that but i i've i that's the sort of question that dan savage answered for me like 15 years ago yeah you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah no the whole prostate uh, stimulation yeah yeah um, no, no. I mean, I guess, I guess the substance of the question, though, gets back to the whole court case. You know, to what extent is this sexual? Of course, right? Yeah. Because if if you say, you know, if the answer is and not just you, you know, you as we say, you've your experience is limited to your experience. But if like if there, if that's not happening, if no gay guys are going to have a BDSM session with a female dominatrix, that does suggest that what's happening is sexual on some level. Sure. You know, not necessarily legally, and that's right. a whole different issue. you got to define what sex is. But, th I mean, th I guess that's what my my confusion is in this area, and, and a lot of people's confusion is like, okay, it's not sex. You're not having sex with the client, but do you have clients who have orgasms? Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, generally permitted to give themselves an orgasm to give themselves, right. at the end of the session. And, and that, in like, our minds, was how we kept it legal. Right, exactly. Now, what if, 
I mean, it does does anyone have an orgasm just from being spanked? Once or twice. <laughs> yeah. See, that, that's where it gets complicated, right? Because yep. in a sense, you're provoking the orgasm without really even any genital contact. I mean, I've, I've, there are sure. women who can think themselves to orgasm, mm-hmm. right? So, or, there are men who can have an orgasm from a lap dance. You know? Well, apparently a lot of them. I mean, isn't that the point of a lap dance? <laughs> <laughs> but I've never had I've never had a lap dance. I lived with a stripper for years. And she never gave you a lap dance? I know. To me, lap dance is like decaffeinated coffee. Like, why the fuck? You know, if it's decaffeinated, uh-huh. I don't want What's it. What's the point? I'll yeah. have a cup of coffee. You know? Sure. Like, you're going to give me a lap dance. Well, you know, let me take my pants off and then give me a lap <laughs> dance. You know? And yours. I, I just, right. Like, why would I want to come in my jeans? I, what am I, 12? Come on. Yeah. I actually had an orgasm in my sleep during my nap this afternoon. Well, yeah. just anticipating my arrival, I hope. Uh, you caught me. <laughs> it happens all the time. It happens to everybody. Well, I actually just wrote a blog post. Uh, I guess I guess it went up yesterday, two uh. nights ago, and I put it up yesterday, um, about female sexual desire and uh, you know that that book what do women want yeah, that's, that's come out yeah um, which I have I haven't read yet but um, I read a lot of the reviews and yeah. I've watched his TED talk so I kind of get the gist about it and just this idea that um, also especially in the pickup community but with um, you know uh, also an article in uh, psychology today that I read where there's a lot of men who are kind of confused by women's sexual desire and that there's a lot of guys out there who kind of assume that women's default is to refuse sex and that they don't really enjoy it or Mm. it's not something they really want to do and where that happens in the pickup community is you you know you get guys who look at seduction you know and i'm a seduction coach so this is stuff that that i teach and really you know and maybe it's different because i mostly coach women but for me seduction is about offering the possibility of mutual pleasure and shouldering the potential burden of rejection you know like which which makes it a very generous action and there's a lot of guys who they look at seduction and they think of it as like, well, I have to learn the magic words to say to trick this woman into making into, you know, wanting to have sex with me, mm. which is really a very sad attitude to have. Yeah. And so I started to look at, um, you know, we as women and the way that we express our sexual desire and or the ways that we don't express it, you know, and I, I also... I think you saw on my blog, I had a pretty big beef recently with the authors of The Rules during a teleconference panel for New York Magazine for their sex issue. Yeah, I enjoyed reading that. That was good. Oh, thank you. Um, And the reason I... I, This is just one of many reasons I think that The Rules is such an awful book and has promoted such an awful culture is that it really encourages women to say no when they mean yes. And that means that guys don't really know when women mean yes anymore. And they'll say yes and they won't really believe it. And they'll say no and they won't really believe that either and it's like you know i study pickup artistry and krav maga so my consent is never in question because <laughs> tell people what, what krav maga is. <laughs> it's israeli self-defense but it's like really like fuck it's you like, up self-defense yeah it's like you know yeah it's no bullshit no like animal movement kung fu shit it's like yeah. rip your face off yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's pretty intense uh, but uh <laughs> So there, so my consent basically like if I my yes means that we're already fucking and my no is like I punch you right. <laughs> you know right. so um but you know but I don't think that that should be necessary for women to have to say yes or say no and have their answers actually be believed but we as women I think have a responsibility as well to 
to really clarify when we mean yes and when and not you know play into this coy game of like oh I'm going to say no three times before I say yes because that's going to make him want me more and and right. you know that kind of bullshit just makes me so angry and so um, so anyway so I wrote all this in my most recent blog post and one of the things that I saw as a really good sign of progress was I went to see the movie Mortal Instruments the other day. Mm, it's, uh, it's, it's just like this typical kind of tweeny fantasy about, yeah. um, you know, these demon hunters oh. and the girl who is born into being a demon hunter but doesn't know it yet. And then the other ones find her and she fulfills her destiny. But there's this character in it, this gorgeous, like, I mean, like, drool-worthy, like, blonde model dude who's, uh, you know, who who's kind of, like, finds her and becomes her mentor and shows her into the world of demon hunting. And he falls in love with her, like, instantly. Like, without any of her potential being actualized, like, with her just being kind of a very normal teenager and you know and and there's all this sexual tension and everything and i was like this is this is a trope that's like become a real thing now is you know the uh the supernatural like dark brooding like kind of gothic beautiful guy who comes along and finds this very average girl whether you know whether she's like you know a teenager or a graduate student like in 50 shades of gray even though Kristen gray isn't a supernatural being but he's you know he's a billionaire so he's almost one <laughs> you know <laughs> if they exist no but um uh you know and and it's like uh it's kind of the male equivalent of uh the manic pixie dream girl you know the girl who just kind of falls in from out of nowhere mm. and just loves this loves this you know kind of boring brooding zach braff type automatically you know without without question and unconditionally and i was like huh you know this is definitely fantasy and we can't base our our expectations you know we we can't hold our expectations in reality to something like that but like how awesome is it that we're starting to see this character recur so often in like such commercially successful culture, you know, such as, you know, movies and entertainment and, and, you know, books like 50 shades, um, that's completely designed a hundred percent towards women's sexual desires, you know, cause that really has nothing to do with what guys in my experience want to be like, you know, like you can look at someone like, um, Batman or Superman or all the superhero movies and say, oh, those guys appeal to women's sexual appetites as well. Mm. And they do, but they also appeal to men's desire for self-actualization and for, you know, herohood. And uh, and so I was really excited about, you know, seeing seeing something that is indicative, in my opinion, of our culture really trying to wrap their heads around what you know what women want you know like like daniel bergner's book and and to figure out what those sexual fantasies are um and and what really appeals to them specifically and i think that's why we've seen movies like you know twilight and and things like that become so successful lately so i wrote this blog post and i named like a bunch of of characters you know christian gray obviously being one uh edward cullen being one and this guy from the mortal instruments being one and and the uh the pioneer of them uh being you know for my generation anyway being angel from buffy the vampire slayer Mm. uh you know just season one just falls out of the sky and you know immediately is in love with buffy like before they've even had a conversation and uh 
And so anyway, so I took a nap this afternoon after I like went over my post and decided a couple last minute edits I wanted to make. And I felt that my hard work in writing this blog entry, I was rewarded by a very lovely threesome sex dream with two of the characters that I had mentioned, you know, uh, being these gothic pixie dream boys. And I had an orgasm in my sleep. So that was a very long way of explaining that. Congratulations. (laughs) It took longer than the dream. I know, right? Let me say dreams last like 10 seconds or something, (laughs) even the longest one. Yeah. Unfortunately. I don't know. How how would we measure that, right? Well, rapid eye movement. Like they, you know, they they say, like, and I don't know if this is true. I I have a friend who's an expert in these things. I should confirm it with him. But um, that, you know, like there will be 10 seconds of rapid eye movement and you wake someone up and they'll tell you this dream that was like hours of adventure and you know right. and this happened and that happened and that. it's like wow things mm-hmm. happen fast in your sleeping brain i guess so yeah. i guess so right? well aren't aren't like sleep orgasms the best i mean because you're so uninhibited and there's no other sensory input you know it's just like pure wow yeah i mean it's been a long time since i had one but uh i remember wet dreams yeah geez i mean there was there were there were some a, a lag time between when I started having orgasms and when I figured out how to masturbate. I'm ashamed to say, I and mean, everybody else seemed to know, but like, it took me a while to figure it out. <laughs> I'm waking up all wet. <laughs> well, I knew they <laughs> were I wet leak? dreams. My mother was confused, though. Like, what happened to your bed? Like, geez, mom, you're supposed to know these things. You know? <laughs> but no, I mean, I think in my case, I was circumcised, you know, and you see, or I still am, um, but you see these, uh, you know, like, people sort of acting out masturbating men right right and they never mention lube they're just yeah. like you know jerk a jerk a jerk mm-hmm. and like you do that if you're circumcised that doesn't feel good at all that well, hurts. I, know. I was certainly confused about that when i started having sex you know when i was right. a very late bloomer right and yeah. you know no, a I lot like of women don't know so and like... it's like how don't that yeah, doesn't work on me baby. I know, Come on. Right? yeah especially you know, in europe I now you know? no i yeah. look back and thankfully Thankfully, the guy who I gave my first hand job to at the at the ripe old age of 21, believe it or not, because I was 21. a very late bloomer. Thankfully, I got another chance to have sex with him later on, and oh. you know, I had improved quite a bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> I hope it wasn't another hand job. No, no, we actually had sex that time. Oh, it, was, it was pretty excellent. But oh, good. Uh, um, but yeah, and, you want to give him a shout out? What's that? You want to give him a shout out? Maybe he listens. <laughs> um, maybe he knows who he is. <laughs> He's smiling. He's still he, smiling. He definitely knows who he is. Um, but yeah, and it's it, but it's it's bizarre and like almost kind of unfair and oddly frustrating because mm. I actually have a fairly hard time reaching climax when I'm awake, like when I'm with a partner. Well, that's the thing. There are you know? distractions. <laughs> Like there's another person there, you know. Probably your cat's wandering around. Wesley, right? Do you ever and see that and website? You're like, shit, like, oh, this is taking too long, and he's gonna think it's his fault, and it's right. not. And yeah, like, you're thinking. You know, that's yeah, the problem. exactly. And the exactly. whole for me, the you know, aside from just the f- sensation, but the main attraction for of sex for me is that it's the only thing that shuts my brain off for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, that for me is how submission was. Right. You know. Well, you know, see, that's that, that's why. I, I, I was asking about that because I've been with women who are submissives and most of those women were really like hard charging, you know, take control women. And that's what they all said is like, this is my chance to not make a decision, to not think, to yeah. just 
turn it off and, you know, you drive, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I trust you. You know how to drive. Drive and let me sleep in the back seat, you know? it's Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's I, one of I the nice things that. about it. Yeah. And also, too, if you're dealing with sadomasochism in particular, you know, there is the release of endorphins in your brain that happens to cope with pain. And there's right. a there's a moment of euphoria that you right. reach. and. Granted, it's not easy to reach that moment. <laughs> it's kind of like it's a runner's very high until in a way. you get there. What's up? It's like a runner's high. Oh yeah, for yeah, sure, yeah. for sure. But you know, your your brain literally releases opiates. You yeah. know, to to cope with uh, to cope with with pain at that level, and it's great because if someone knows how to administer that pain safely, then they can do it without actually doing any harm to your body. Right. So you get to still experience that without you know. I don't know, being interrogated by, you know, someone who's actually going to cut your fingers off or what have you. Right. Yeah, they, I was reading research recently about uh, endorphin release in animals that are being um, killed by a predator. Oh, wow. And apparently, like, when you see the cheetah bring down the antelope and the antelope doesn't really struggle, you know, it runs, but once it's caught, it just sort of says, okay, yeah. whatever, that that it's it's having this massive release of endorphins oh, wow. so it dies in orgasmic bliss which is pretty beautiful when wow. you think about it you know that is pretty good to know actually and it completely subverts the hobbesian narrative of you know nature bloody red in tooth and claw and you know that right. we're all put on this planet to you know destroy and consume one another and all that right right it's like well maybe we are but in the natural process there's actually a pleasure at death. Whereas what we're doing with our mechanized slaughter of, you know, cows and pigs and all that doesn't even give them that, that, you know, that dignity and that that beauty in their death. That's what I was wondering is would it, you know, would it be the same for... For an animal on the farm who is being killed, would they also have the same? I don't release? think so because they don't have that. Uh, you know, they're not they're not fleeing. You know, they don't have right. the, the the whole physiological process of of trying to get away. And you know, and and look, I'm not saying that this is universal. And it's I read one article about it, so even the article could be wrong. But I, it's something I'm pursuing. I'm looking into more because. Um, you know, I, I was thinking uh, this book. I'm writing a book called "Civilized to Death," and it's very much about how civilization subverts a more, a sort of healthy relationship with death. And um, I interviewed uh, Caitlin uh, Doty. Do you know who she is? Uh, no, she, I haven't. Oh, heard she's of her. great. She's a she's like a hip mortician in L.A. I'll oh, put wow. you in touch with her if you want to. She's really cool. Um, anyway, she. Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about our relationship with death and. Um, I was thinking about these, uh, you know, this image of Shark Week recently. You know? Oh, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so I saw this image of a like a great white, you know, coming up out of the wave and like biting into a seal and the seal's desperate. And, you know, then there's the the, the, the guy, the sharks attack, you know, uh, life is this constant struggle for survival. And I thought, you know, wait a minute, let's dial that back. Like, okay, that seal is probably seven years old, right? And... All right, this is the last day of that seal's life, no doubt about it, right? But what were all the other days like? Yeah. Right? He wasn't, like, fleeing from great white sharks every damn day of his life. (laughs) 
you know, a, a typical day in the life, life of a, of a seal, seal is like pretty cool. You know, you get some fish, you lie on a rock. Yeah, it sounds pretty good to me, to be honest. I mean, it, yeah, it's like a vacation. It's what we pay to do, you know, a week a year or something. Yeah, right. It's like that's a seal's life. And okay, okay, got eaten by a shark. But to extrapolate from that and say, you know, oh, nature's so cruel. Well, well I don't know. Right. I'd rather be eaten by a shark than, you know, die with tubes up my nose, probably. Yeah. Anyway, don't don't mean to drag us down into that. <laughs> God. So, okay, now here's my chance to ask an expert. You mentioned before, like you teach people, uh, women, how men think. How do men think? First of all, do men think? Do men think? Yeah, do actually, we? I think okay. these days they they overthink more than anything. <laughs> you know. You know. Do you know there, there's a book called The Romantic Movement? Have you ever heard of that? No, there's I haven't heard of it. Elaine de Botton. Okay. You know who he is. He's. Oh written, yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. He's uh, a philosophy. Yeah, 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 and and uh, the consolations of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting guy. This book was recommended to me by a 13 year old girl on a transatlantic flight i was oh, wow. sitting next to this girl and she was like she was like jody foster when she was 13 like yeah. that kind of kid uh-huh. like you know okay you're 13 but you're blowing my mind kid you know like wow uh, you're older than me somehow you know and she we were talking about books and she was like oh the, the book you really need to read the romantic movement and i was like okay, okay kid whatever <laughs> and i took i wrote it down and later i read it and it, it was great it's a great book wow and it's all about how men and women interact it's all it, like he'll it, there's the narrative the typical thing the guy meets the woman in the bar whatever and then he'll break from the story and get into like the philosophy of what's happening you know is she interested in his resources is he you know looking for fertility you know all that kind of right. stuff subtext uh-huh. you know? right anyway the point is uh romantic movement the thing i remember is he says to get to your point about how men think he said there there's the northern european approach and the southern european approach and the northern european approach is the man meets the woman, sees her, whatever, falls in love immediately. Sort of like what you were describing, you know, this guy falls from the sky. So, And then he's like writes a poem or he, you know, c- composes a song or he puts a lot of effort into this thing. And then he approaches the woman finally with, you know, whatever his line is or his, you know, devotional piece of music or whatever. And he's like put so much energy into it that the woman can't help but be sort of intimidated and freaked out because mm-hmm. like this guy doesn't even know me yeah. you know and he's kind of obsessive and weird and thanks anyway yeah. and she's scared and then the guy's like suicidal because he's been rejected all right now the southern european where i've lived in spain for 20 years so i could tell you this i've learned a lot about this the southern european is you see her she's she's great and you say hey you're great you know let's hang out and she says no and you say well okay of course she said no you know most women say no and you go on with your life and it's no big deal right uh-huh and the fact that it's so low-key makes it easier for her to say yes because it's no big deal it's like you said shouldering the responsibility of right. rejection mm-hmm. like hey of course you're gonna say no maybe you're married maybe you got a boyfriend maybe you just don't like me whatever who cares right it's not a big deal and they end up with a much higher success rate Putting much less effort into it. Yeah. So I've just asked you a question, then gave you my answer. (laughs) What's your answer? Well, I think there's a third type. You know, there's the American male, (laughs) the North American male. Yeah. You know, um, and I think like the we're living in a very antiquated idea that 
the guy always approaches the woman and right. asks her out. Mm. And that's just not true anymore. You know, and when I had my big debacle with the rules women, you know, they... Uh, you know, they were arguing that my teaching women how to approach men was very dangerous information and yeah. that, you know, I was upturning the whole natural way of things and that this is why I had a boyfriend who had at the at the time I had a boyfriend uh, who had not committed to monogamy with me yet. And I was yeah, like, that's nice. <laughs> um, I was the one who suggested not monogamy, actually, yeah. because he lived oh, in Canada. I was like, I don't do law, you know, and, and that's a whole other discussion about how their assumption that monogamy is like that non-monogamy is clearly a bad deal for women because women must not actually enjoy sex. And, you know, yeah. Uh, anyway, that's a whole other thing. But and you get uh, a lot of that from feminists. In fact, I just this, today I read an article in The Guardian making exactly that argument. It was written by a feminist from the 60s and 70s who said, like, this is not what we fought for. Right. Because this free, unencumbered relationships. Great for men. Terrible for women. Mm hmm. And yeah. and I, obviously, I think you and I agree that that's a pretty flawed philosophy um and and again yeah. you know we get back into daniel bergner and what do women want like oh wow women actually really enjoy sex like women are just as visually stimulated by pornography as men are like wow is this actually true yeah although the the thing that that we always for myself i i keep reminding myself never to forget to mention is that this all happens in a social economic context and so you know, I, I certainly agree that women have the potential to enjoy sex as much or more than men, that, that women have as much libido as men do. It expresses itself in different ways. You sure. know, there are differences, of course. But, but where I agree with this woman's critique, or at least what I think she was trying to get at, is, you know, there is, we still have the, the fact that women get pregnant and men don't. True. And... There, it's very deeply political to say, hey, women enjoy sex as much as men do. Women should be able to do this and that. You know, All that's true. But we also have to say women need to make just as much money as men do for doing the same jobs. Well, that's very true. right? And there needs to be a social contract that as a society, we will take care of women and children. Right. You know, a ship starts going down, women and children first. Everyone agrees. Women and children first. I, you know, maybe that's fair or unfair. And maybe that's not really what happened on the Titanic, sure. by the way. You know, interesting. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, we as a society, we express value. We take take care of vulnerable people, particularly children and pregnant women. Right. Uh, America doesn't. We yeah. don't. And that's why women have to, or at least a lot of women feel they have to play those games that we both hate. Sure, yeah. Because that's the only way they can have someone to take care of them when they need to be taken care of. Right, right. So, you know what I mean? It's like... I definitely get that. I mean, in my... It's tough. In my personal experience, and I know that my experience is certainly not... Uh, not the experience of the majority of women, but uh, the men I've dated <laughs> have cost me more money. Than <laughs> That's given, right. We've established that. You know? yeah, yeah. And, and not just that one. You know, it's, it's like so you know, financially, <laughs> I, like I'm a scrapper. You know, I've always been a survivor. And yeah. um, 
uh, that's one of the reasons that, you know, people are like, oh, do you see yourself getting married one day? And I say, I see myself having a wedding and wearing a beautiful white dress and having a cake and exchanging rings and vows in front of all my family and friends, but never filling out the paperwork because what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. Right. You know, just because I've had so many bad experiences or whatever. Um, but getting back to your original question about... Um, Oh, how men think, the North American male, right? Yeah. Um, You know, there's this mythology we live under that if a man wants a woman, he will approach her and Mm. ask her out. And that's just not true anymore. Um, I've, the majority of the guys that I've dated have, in fact, almost all of the guys I've dated in the last several years, like since my last long-term relationship when I was a pro-dom, have been guys that I've asked out. And... You know, the, the the rules women in their, their teleconference with me, you know, halfway through the, through the call, they looked me up on Twitter. I think I mentioned this in my blog post. And they saw my avatar with my photo. And they said, oh, are, are you Arden? Is that you? And I said, yes, that's me. With, with the dark hair? Yes, yes, I have dark hair. Oh, but you're so pretty. Surely you wouldn't have problems with men approaching you. <laughs> you know? And... Uh, I, I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess I get approached sometimes, but not necessarily by the guys that I want, you know? Why is that? Do you, do you like timid guys? Do I what? Like timid guys? Do I like timid guys? No, but... Do you think you scare them? I think that's possible at times. Or maybe I just do the asking out first before they get a chance. That's uh, also you're, you're a possibility. The draw. Yeah, maybe they would have asked me out you know, in, in time had I given them the opportunity. <laughs> um, I asked a guy out on Twitter today. Like, today? Li- yeah, literally, it's literally a couple hours ago, there was uh, you know, someone, someone who works in publishing retweeted a tweet by a guy saying he just signed a two-book deal with uh, Simon & Schuster. And, you know, I, I clicked on it and I saw kind of like a little what his book was about. And I looked at his photo and it said he lived in Brooklyn. And his, his profile said like, you know, oh, so-and-so is an author, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, at the end it said, consider buying him dinner. So I wrote back to the tweet where he announced getting a book deal. And I said, congratulations, should I consider buying you dinner as your profile advises? And he wrote back and said, you know, I just clicked on your blog. And as I'm reading it, um, the, yes, the desire for dinner is growing exponentially. <laughs> And so I said, great, what is your week like? <laughs> and, uh, and he's in Europe till next month, but apparently we're going to have dinner, you know, so I, who knows? Like, I mean, maybe like, maybe that guy like would have asked me out eventually if I had just like tweeted at him a couple times or like found an excuse through the mutual friend who retweeted him to meet him or whatever. But I'm like, I don't know why. Like you can yeah. already see from my Twitter feed, like you can get an idea of who I'm like, yeah. you should know, like if you want to spend an hour with me having a meal, right. you know? Um, but also, uh, yeah, I think, I think some guys have been kind of intimidated and also, um, most importantly, uh, as you know, Neil Strauss kind of summed up, you know, when I was telling him at first, the kind of coaching that I do, he kind of summed it up really brilliantly. And he said, um, he said, women are seeking men of value, but those men aren't always going to be approaching them because they're probably going to be well busy. <laughs> So, you know, a lot of the the coaching that I do and like for a long time, for example, I had a thing for dating rock stars, you know, so that meant for me, like finding a way to get backstage, finding a way to be introduced to them. Like, do I know the opening band? Can I like can I pawn my way into an introduction or what have you, you know, and but it's like it's, you know, a lot of times the guys that I end up dating are guys who, 
if I hadn't contrived at least a way to meet them and flirt with them enough to at least express interest to like right. at least give them permission to ask me out, right. like they just never would have heard of me. Right. <laughs> you well, know, that's, that's the reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly. And no, do you have do you have any personal rules for yourself? Like no sex on the first date or you know whatever. No, not necessarily. Uh, because the guy in Europe's listening right now. I'm sure he, he, he asked me. He just, I've got an earpiece. He just asked me to ask you that. Uh, it, it kind of depends on what category I'm putting someone in. You know, uh-huh. so if there's someone who the goal is really just to hook up, and then if it goes somewhere after that, like that's great but not necessary then then sure i'll have sex with that person right away Mm. and certainly you kind of get that with your you know you're like hey my favorite band is in town you know um yeah i'll spend a night on the tour bus why not and then they're (laughs) and then they're a long um, night with sting what's that it's a long night when it's Uh, i know i don't i don't know if i could (laughs) i don't know if i could handle that gonna get tantra baby (laughs) you see sting there's a picture of sting reading our book in rolling stone oh really Yeah, yeah i did ask his son out once but i uh, uh, his Sting. son Joe Sumner, who sings for uh, Fiction Plane. Oh, yeah. yeah. But you yeah. know, but I was really sloppy about it, and it didn't end up going anywhere because mm. I had to. I had to leave to meet another guy I was going on a date with. <laughs> another high value target. And uh, yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> and uh, but but while I was at the party where Joe Sumner was, I did manage to contrive his approaching me. Uh, I, uh-huh. You know, just by where I was standing, what I was wearing, and I I was with a, I was with a friend who. Uh, who knew him he was like Arden I really don't I really don't know him well enough to uh to like pawn an introduction for you like I I feel a little awkward like he's sitting over there he's with you know people he knows you know and I was like okay well can you do me a favor and can you stand with me right here so we were right in his field of vision (laughs) right and I was like hold my coat so you know Uh my arms and collarbone are bare you Uh know like signaling approachability and I said all right for the next three minutes Everything I say is the most fascinating thing you've ever heard. And, you know, and I was like, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Mary had a little lamp. You know, Testicles, like, one, you two, know, three. Tossing my hair or whatever. Uh, sure enough, the guy walks over, you know, Sting's son. Just Walks over in. from where he was sitting with his friends. Comes up and puts his arm around my friend who claims he doesn't know him well enough and says, mm. hey, buddy, great show. How's it going? You know, and then looks at me, hey, who are you? You know, and I'm just like. That was the smoothest indirect approach I have ever facilitated. I was like so proud of that. But I I gave him my card, but I had to leave like literally five minutes after. So I feel like I feel like I probably could have arranged a date with him if I had stuck around longer to set my hooks. But I had to go and meet someone at the box. So. At the yeah, box. The box. Have you been to the box? It's pretty awesome. What's the box? It's a, uh, it's a nightclub, but they do like a sort of raunchy cabaret with a lot of uh, burlesque and like nude aerial and stuff like that. No, no. So no. it's like it's like part douchey bottle service club, but you know, with an actual show that's pretty cool. Oh. Yeah. It was pretty neat. Yeah. It's, it's a good date spot. <laughs> Douchey bottle service club. I've been to a few of those in Hollywood. Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. God. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I've got a friend. I mean, I would never, I, I mean, I'm, I don't know whether I'm a cheapskate or just too old or whatever, but I wasn't into it when I was young either. But just like, you know, the whole dating scene, it's never worked for me. It's never been my thing. You know, like I would meet people in classes where, the, you know, we're talking, they hear me like, oh, the guy's kind of smart. And, what you know, so that's my 
appeal. I'm not the guy in the nightclub. I used to hang out with fashion models a lot mm-hmm. in Barcelona. I lived in this house where everybody was a fashion model except me. It was like oh, nice. Rose <laughs> really weird scene. But I used to go out with them, and I, it was amazing to see how life is for those people. The guys, you know, the women, of course, you know, whatever. It's always like that. But for these guys who are just so good looking, walk into a club and it's just like women just bouncing off them everywhere and and doing all their little displays in front of them. And I mean, as from an anthropology of sex perspective, <laughs> it was really interesting. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. as a guy, you just assume that doesn't have that. See, I guess the point is that it's averted. That dominant paradigm of female behavior, right? That women are always discerning and they're always looking for resources and commitment and yada, yada, yada. Not with those dudes. Not at all. You know, women were just like, hi, I just want to hang out with you. You know, you got an hour, an hour. If it, you know, whatever. They, They were not making any demands. Yeah. Very, very interesting to see that happen. As a as a regular civilian, you know. Yeah, I I spent a lot of time go go dancing at those kind of clubs, you know, oh. because it's it's a it's a good gig. They have the money to pay, you know, decently, and uh, you know, and and also I always I always go there with this idea of like, oh well, clearly if I'm you know, if I'm the dancer up on the platform, like I'll. I can I can meet anyone I want technically because everyone's going to be looking at me and you know mm. I can approach someone I want or they'll approach me you know when I'm not dancing or whatever. But then I never at those clubs I never end up seeing anyone who looks even remotely interesting. Yeah, you know, like I definitely met more people when I was go go dancing at like dirty little rock bars on the Lower East Side, you know, in the East Village. Yeah, than I did uh, than I did at those clubs, and finally I was like. Yeah, the the time I've spent in nightlife in New York has been some of the most wasted time ever, you and, know? And money. It's, yeah. Uh, especially in bottle clay. Oh, know, sure. So. I mean, thankfully, I didn't spend any money on it. Yeah, but, I know. But I as a guy, you know, money. you're supposed to pay. <laughs> I mean, I've, I dated a go-go go go dancer and strippers. I lived with a stripper for years. And uh, so I, I, like, had connections to those worlds, but I would never pay for any of that. Yeah. I, I could never. It's like lap dancing. Why the hell would I pay for that? Yeah, right? Me? Well, it's they're kind of displaying their, you know, it's, it's their, all yeah. their peacock feathers almost, you know, right. that they're throwing money around and they look important or whatever. And, yeah. And I but guess there's a certain breed it. of women who's maybe attracted to that, you know? I mean, you see those kind of yeah. girls at their tables or whatever. I had guys get really offended sometimes at those kind of clubs when I would politely refused to have a drink at their table like no no thanks i'm gonna go hang out with my friends like right. i actually had a guy like grab me at one point you know and i had to like you know pull one of my krav maga blocks and oh. say don't fucking touch me right you know right. and then he went to the security guard and lied and said that i had slapped him oh i was like really yeah. you're gonna try and get His me thrown out because ego. yeah exactly yeah. so i said no but that yeah. that gentleman actually did uh you know physically grabbed me and tried to pull me you know yeah and got upset when i refused you, you want to know what really happened you know yeah. so yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well i mean i guess it's what's the line is it woody allen or or i don't remember who said it. i'd never want to belong to a club that would have me right. as a member uh-huh. right it's Sounds like you're you and I share. We've, we've flipped it. I would never want to belong to a club that wouldn't have me as a member. Yeah. Right? In other words, you know why? 
I mean, that's the thing about rejection. I, I, I was rejected by my first girlfriend. I was dumped by my first girlfriend when I was like 17. Mm-hmm. It broke my heart, destroyed my life for months. And after that, I never cared. Never again. You know, and it's not that the rejection doesn't hurt, but it's like, I guess because the woman who dumped me, you know, three months later, I was with a gorgeous, sexy Cuban woman Alicia if you're listening I still love you who like was so much better in every way you know what I mean and so I was like wait a minute I would have given anything to stay where I was and now I'm here right exactly so never question like any anything that ends or breaks or you know what I mean it it opens up other possibilities you can't possibly see coming trust you know life gets better yeah. and and you'll never convince a woman to stay with you by oh, yeah. begging her to stay with you all you'll do is ma- is dig your hole deeper mm-hmm. the best thing you can do is say okay fine yeah. see you you know good luck and and the hope will stay friends. Yeah, right. You know, that, yeah. that's that's all you can do. So you know, deal with it. And you don't ever want to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't actually want to be there, even if you think you do. Right. You know, it's corrosive and horrible. It's, yeah, yeah because you deserve someone who loves you enthusiastically. You know, right. someone who you know. And if and until you find them, being by yourself is also really interesting and, and a learning experience. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of people listen then to this. You get to go backstage younger, with so. all the rock stars and you know have your fun <laughs> in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next time we do this, I want to talk more about your your star fucker phase. <laughs> and your go-go dancing. I mean, we've just started to scratch the surface I know, here. right? There's Let a lot more. Let me say for the record, though, yeah. that I am always the star fucky because, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. I'm Arden Lee, damn it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the star fucky. I like that. There's a good name for a book. Star fucky. There we go, right? <laughs> well, that's the attitude you have to have, you know, I'm regardless of whether it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, fake it till you make it, I guess. Yeah. Listen, this has been fantastic. Uh I'd love to talk to you again. Maybe when you're in LA, we definitely can, we can that would catch be wonderful. And hear how things are going. Yeah, thank over you there. so much for having me today. It's been my pleasure. Listen, uh, where can people follow you, read your stuff? What's the name of your blog? Uh, the name, the, the URL for my blog is www.ardenleigh.typepad.com. Mm-hmm. And my book, The New Rules of Attraction, is available on Amazon and uh, in most Barnes & Noble. And uh, let's see. Well, I'm on Twitter at Arden Sirens. And uh, Sirens, the Siren Seduction Forum is also uh, the name of my coaching company. And I think uh, that URL is uh, SeductionSirens.com. Seduction Sirens. Yep. And... Uh, yeah, or, or you, you can just Google me, but watch out for the not safe for work photos. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to go home and Google you right now. <laughs> Look for the not safe for work photos. Excellent. <laughs> All right, thank you. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day.
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground. 